0: so I'm sitting in a hover at a thousand feet and I get the clearance and I remember the aircraft Hotel Papa Kilo, cleared direct Ardmore. As soon as I pulled in a little bit of power and, and nosed over it started running real rough and I realized something was wrong and so I entered an auto rotation.
1: Welcome aboard the High Fly Media podcast dedicated to sharing the stories and experiences of the amazing people who make aviation happen. From pilots like me to engineers, air traffic controllers and others I'll explore their personal journeys, the challenges they've faced, and the triumphs they've achieved. My name is Damien, and I'll be your host. Whether you're a seasoned aviation enthusiast or new to the field, I invite you to join me as we take off on this journey of discovery. Joining us on the High Fly Media podcast today is Nick Bowie, a successful entrepreneur, passionate hunter, and holder of a commercial helicopter pilot license. Nick obtained his license in New Zealand when he was just a little younger, and he's here to share his insights and experiences with us. Welcome, Nick. Thank you. Good to be here. It's good to see you again. Nick and I actually go back probably a bit over 10 years now, and I didn't know Nick was a pilot, and we were talking one day, and I mentioned that, you know, I had flown, and I'd done this, that, and the other, Nick's like, oh, I'm a pilot too, except I went fixed wing. he went helicopter. Yeah. I know that you grew up in New Zealand. Correct. Uh, So tell us a little bit about your childhood, where you lived, and perhaps how that shaped your interest in aviation. And in particular, what inspired your passion in aviation?
0: Okay, sure. So I grew up in Auckland, New Zealand, and um, my dad uh, was probably the first person who inspired me uh, into aviation. He worked for Air New Zealand. He actually applied for the Air Force when he was straight out of school and his eyesight was too bad and he failed the medical Back then there was no such thing as laser surgery or anything like that, so he flat out got rejected there. So took the second option and went to Air New Zealand but was the um, in charge of uh, ground supervisor um, stuff um, on the traffic side of things. So when you check your bag in, uh, back in those days, he was in charge of weight and balance on all the aircraft and the uh-huh. pilot just signed it off. So he was very mathematically minded, worked his way up through the ranks and was um, – yeah one of the um bosses at uh what used to be NAC uh National Airways Corporation in New Zealand turned into Air New Zealand cuz right. Air New Zealand used to be the international carrier and NAC was the domestic carrier ah, right and so um he worked uh there and worked his way up uh there um, but yeah, back before there was um, you know uh, weight and balance um, apps and yeah. and uh, computer computers. even computers. Yeah. Uh, so from the 1950s onwards, and in Auckland where we lived, we were right on the flight path between Fenua uh, Pai and um, Auckland International. Or where they used to, you know, the airspace as I came to know it, uh, they would track almost directly over our house to fly. Um, over the Auckland tower and then off down to Waiuru or wherever else they were going. So every day we had Iroquois and the, the small wasps that the Navy used to use. And so I developed a love of helicopters. Ah. My dad used to love the fixed wing side of things. And he used to go, uh, all his friends at Air New Zealand were pilots and um, his best man at his, at his wedding was um, the chief pilot at Pacific Airways for a number of years. Um, that's another story I could tell you about. <laughs> um, but um, we used to have a batch on Waiheke Island in Auckland and we used to catch the goose air, um, amphibious aircraft across there all the time. And my dad knew all the pilots, so it was always, um, you know, if we needed to get over there quickly, he would um, call one of his mates and say, hey, can we hitch a lift over to Waiheke Island? Yeah, right. And so, yeah, we we spent our summers over there and spent a bit of time in small aircraft and things like that. So... Yeah, that's that's where it all started. My dad had plane books and magazines and all yeah. that sort of stuff littered all over the house. I could tell you the difference between a you know, Messerschmitt 109 and a Spitfire, which a lot of people couldn't do by the time they were three years old. But yeah, 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 I had every plane identification down for the Second World War because I was born in 1970. So that's only you know, thirty odd years after the, after Second, the Second, World.
1: Second World War. I've got to ask you then, what's your favourite aeroplane movie? I know that's a bit off the reservation today. Aeroplane
0: movie. Okay. It's changed recently. Please don't say Top Gun. Maverick. <laughs> I mean, as trashy as it is, it was a cool, no, it was it was a a cool, cool movie. Hundred percent. I grew up with the Dam Busters, yeah, yeah. Um, Mosquito Squadron, yeah. things like that. Battle that was this, that was yeah, Battle of yeah. Britain. They were the Sunday afternoon movies that used to play when yeah. I was a little fella, and my dad and I used to sit there and watch those movies. Uh, you know, that was before VCRs. So if there was a movie coming up, you'd look it up in the paper and things oh, like man. that, and it would it would be like, "Hey, Dad, Damn Busters is on again this Sunday. You know, seven o'clock. Can I stay up and watch it with you?" Type of thing. That's you know, cool. as a more could so yeah. yeah yeah top gun 1984 i went and saw it at
1: the movies i was in Raff base Amberley cinema
0: okay well that's yep. a cool one it was yeah.
1: grade? i think it was 84 or 85 it was at the cinema there yep. so i was in like grade four yep. something like that
0: well i saw it at mid-city cinemas in auckland downtown auckland with a couple of mates of mine it's and-
1: almost like a for an aviation tragic it's almost like you know if you say to my mum where were you when you found out John F. Kennedy had been yeah. murdered? She'll tell you exactly yeah, where yeah. she was. I know. What she was doing. Yeah, It's like us with Top Gun.
0: Well, well <laughs> here's another aviation fact for you that I found out, and this is, this is hilarious, you'll, you'll laugh at this, but I was conceived on the day or the night that Neil Armstrong walked on the moon. <laughs> July 20, 1969. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. And so
1: my mum told me that, yeah. and I was like, ma. Too but. much information. <laughs> too much information, but it's a cool fact. Yeah. You know, so. Very, yeah. very cool. Yeah. So, that, yeah, I can obviously see how that, your dad's history there, probably not too dissimilar to my father being in the Air Force. You know, you've obviously got that connection. Yeah. Yeah. So, Auckland yeah. Airport, was that civilian
0: and military? No. So, Whenuapai Airport is the military airport in New Zealand. It's uh, Hobsonville area. Uh, Whenuapai, Hobsonville, uh, one is the helicopter base uh, for the RNZAF and mm-hmm. the other is the uh, – Whenuapai is known as the – now this is going back to when I was flying because I think Hubs, Hobsonville's kind of shut down now. They've moved all the NH90s down to Ohakia, right?
1: Um,
0: but when I was uh, flying and when I grew up, Pi was the where all the C130s, the Orions, and the um, Andovers were stationed, and uh, all the Iroquois and Wasps were at Hobsonville. Now they're, they're adjoining air bases; right. one's across the road from the other. Gotcha. But um, Auckland Air. Uh, so my da- so in New Zealand. Started or NAC started at Fenua Pi, ah. then they built Auckland. International, international and domestic airports. So Unsharp. my dad started at for Pi, and then they all moved across there. Another side note is my mum and dad met at in e New Zealand or NAC. My mum was a hostess on DC3s.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, so wow. Yeah, no, cool. you had no chance. No, no chance. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Tragic <laughs> so from the beginning. As long as you weren't conceived on a DC3. No, I don't think so. Rightio. So, okay, so you've seen these, uh, the Hueys and the, the Wasps as a young fella. Yep. And it's obviously sparked your interest in flying rotary wing. Yeah. How did that all come about?
0: Okay. So when I was 21, just kind of said, this is what I want to do. And my eyesight was not very good either. I would carried on the genetic um, woeful eyesight, the short-sightedness, but to become a pilot, a civilian pilot, not, I looked at the military, but didn't qualify because of my eyesight still. Yeah. So, this is 1992 uh, at that point. And uh, so, I didn't qualify for the military. So, I knew that that was not an option. And so, I looked into becoming a commercial pilot. And at the time, I went out to Ardmore. Ardmore's like, the, it's the busiest airfield in New Zealand um, because it does a lot of training, and right. and they had a lot of contracts, overseas contracts there at the time. So Fixwing was just like really, really busy. And I did an intro flight in a Robinson R twenty two. Just went out there. They had a radio station. Had come out, pay thirty bucks, do an intro flight, and see how you like it. Well, I went and did that intro flight, and I was hooked. <laughs> I was like, I'm not interested in flying little planes. I'm interested in flying these helicopters. This is very difficult, but you know, and of course the sales guys tell you that there's a market for all the you know, like yeah. if you if you get your license, you'll get a job and yeah. you know, you just have to work hard, sweep a few floors and things like that and it'll all work out. It'll all work out. So I actually went and got a loan. There was no student loans back then. They happened five or six years after I got my commercial license. And so I was uh, very much go off and get a massive overdraft and paid your way, paid my way far out and uh, started flying. I could tell you in my logbook what date and time I did the uh, introductory Intro flight, flight, uh, the 2nd of November 1992. 1992. And a little R22, and that's the last time I flew an R22 for many years. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. R22s were not very popular back when, uh, in in that time. They were considered unsafe, a toy, not something that you do your flight training in. Yeah, right. And so uh, I did my initial um, flight at uh, Ardmore Flying School, and they only had an R22, and then they had an old Hughes 500C model and those were the only two helicopters they had access to and I wanted to fly a real helicopter. So I went across the road, across the airfield and introduced myself at Aviation College. The rest is history. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember much about that initial oh, yeah. flight? Yeah, I do. I rem- I remember, yeah, it was it a was southeasterly and he... Flew at low level into the what I knew as the TALO, the takeoff and landing operations area. Um, I, don't, I don't think they use what's called TALOs here in Australia. I've never seen one. It was specifically for helicopters. And so he maneuvered the helicopter into that area very quickly and then said, right, grab the cyclic and see if you can hold it there. And so he gave me the cyclic and all of a sudden we started drifting backwards and to the left. <laughs> and I kinda went, Am I doing that? I'm not you know and he said, Yeah. And he and he, he said, I've got it and and I have control and and pushed us back to that spot and then said, Have another crack. And I kinda went, and I started drifting to the left again and and um you know, backwards and, and, and to the left. And I thought, wow, this is really difficult and challenging. And then he gave me the pedals and I was better on the pedals because we were facing into wind and it was actually blowing. So it was kind of like, for me, I just, he said, you've got that pedal. And I pushed the pedal and he goes, I give it a little bit more. And, and so I was able to maneuver with the pedals and then he gave me the collective and we went straight up and, and straight down and, and, you know, all the things that instructors, uh, you know, I realized that I was trying to kill him. A few, few, um,
1: (laughs) what do you call them? Pilot-induced oscillations. That's right. Yeah, Yeah.
0: and uh, I, and yeah. So that was my introduction, and I thought, what a challenge. Yeah. But then I wanted to. I'd done a bit of research, spoken to a few flight schools and things like that, and then realised that um, Robinsons back then were not very popular with a lot of the flight schools. And so I looked at 300s, uh, Hughes 300s or Schweitzer 269C models. They looked like a helicopter when you sat in them. They had the cyclic between the legs, um, cyclic trim and things like that. And so everything about them
1: seemed more like a helicopter to me. So I, yep, yeah, signed up. That's cool. Yeah. That's really cool. So tell us, can you tell us a bit about, yeah. you know, you've, you've done your commercial, what happened? Yeah.
0: Yeah. okay so I, I did I, I was a little bit smart back then but I did my when I signed up to do my commercial I had them say to me that they would employ me because they say oh, it's easy to get a job feel like and I said well will you employ me when I'm done and they said yeah we will let you do all our commercial work so I was like cool I don't know how much commercial work that would be mm. it ended up being reasonable. I'd do all the maintenance flying. I'd do all the repositions. Um, so we had a hangar, any maintenance flying that needed to be done, compass swings and things like that. I would do all that. You know, aircraft comes out after a 50 hour check, I would, Take it for a quick bladder around the circuit, things like that. So I was clocking up point one, point two at a time, yeah. and um, and so I, I would um, I would clean the aircraft. It was just a basic hangar boy job type of thing, but there were two of us doing it. One focused on the fixed wing side, and they thought it was a bonus that they had me to help them with the the, the rotary side. Yeah. and so so what, uh, you were about twenty two by now. No, that would I would have been twenty three. Twenty three. Yeah, um, it took me seven and a half months to do my commercial, commercial and right. a lot of that is because of rain delays and weather delays and things like that and it really good in New Zealand is the fact that sometimes it's like it's raining and you're training it's a good time to go flying because yeah, yeah. you learn to fly in weather it's no good being here on the sunshine okay.
1: coast learning to fly yeah. because you're going to be 300 days of sunshine well, that's it I the Chief Flying Instructor when I was training up in Toowoomba, he said if you can fly out of Toowoomba, you can fly out of anywhere in Australia because yep. of the, you know, the winds and the clouds over the yep. top of the range and yep. so on and so forth. But anyway.
0: Well, that's that's the same. If you can learn to fly in Ardmore, you're 10 minutes from the Hanua Ranges, um, you're, you're half an hour from the Kaimai Ranges, which, you know, they go up to 4,000 feet. Um, there's mountain flying within a stone's throw, there's, um, there's coastal, there's, you know, you've got a big venturi from mostly west, west to east, but you've got rain, you know, 300 days of the year as opposed to, uh, <laughs> you know, 300 days of sunshine. It can, be, it can be sunny on the north shore and snowing an hour south and close to Raglan, you know. Yeah. Like, so, yeah, di- different temperatures and four seasons in one day and things like that. So a really good place to learn to fly did all the commercial work, did scenic tours, did, did um, dropping people off to wineries and um, in the early days, heli fishing. Uh, so was that in the 300 or were you? Yeah, I was doing 300 stuff. I did a little bit in the Jet Ranger as well when I, yeah, okay. when I did my type rating in the Jet Ranger. Mm. Believe it or not, back then, if you couldn't afford a squirrel to take you out to Great Barrier Island to go fishing, you sure as heck could afford a Hughes 300 mm-hmm. for the day. Yeah, yeah. You know? And so lots of people were doing it. Yeah right. It's not that safe traveling for half an hour over water, water but um, <laughs> you didn't have to have floats. You could just have a life jacket on and things like that. And and so
1: yeah, it's a little bit cowboyish. Oh man, that even that just makes me wonder. Well, obviously, you practiced auto rotations, and I'm assuming you never practiced an auto, auto rotation into water. No, but-, but
0: you you get told which side to move the cyclic to in the event of a ditching. So if you have to ditch, you want to push the mast in a certain direction depending on which way the blades are turning to prevent the main transmission coming through the the cockpit type of thing and yeah, right. and, and killing your passenger or yourself or, yeah. you know, whoever's in it. So you learn that sort of stuff and, yeah, it, it is one of those considerations that you go through in your head mentally, you know, what would I do, what would I do? You constantly, if I have an auto rotation now, if I if, if I have an engine failure right now, where am, where I, am I going? Gonna go? What am I going to do? Yeah. And it's just one of those things that you're – you know, it's drummed into you and it's drummed into you for a reason. And by the time you got a hundred, because the commercial licenses back then were 150 hours, you know, you did your sling load, you did all your night stuff and low level was just part of it. There was no 125, 105-hour option back then. It was 150 hours. And as most guys will tell you, by the time you're 150 hours, you've done so many auto rotations, you can hit that spot mm. in that aircraft. Um, and, you know, if you're going to go for a range auto, your decision-making is really good at 150 hours. I think for a young pilot at that time, you're ready for a check ride. You've done so many. Yeah. Um, and But you are constantly, regardless of where you are, what you're doing, you're thinking there's a good spot there's a good spot. If it happens now, I'm going there. Mm. And even you can fly past that spot and go the winds, you know, it's a tailwind, Mm. that spot's still the best spot. You you can can be be a couple of hundred metres past, you can be half a kilometre past, 5,000 feet or whatever, and go I can make it back to that spot because that's the only spot that I can make it to. Yeah, You know, some of the
1: country in New Zealand is pretty rugged. I remember flying out between – Gundawindi Windy and Toowoomba, and, and there's a lot of forestry out there. And it was the same deal. I remember, I, like, I wasn't giving it a, a really a second thought. And the instructor said to me, Where are you going to land? Engine failure. Where are you going to land? And I yeah. was like, Oh, you know, it caught me off guard. And it was yeah. like, Well, there's a hole in the trees over there. And he's yeah. like, It's the only place. Yeah. And then doing my night rating, and I'd flown north out of Toowoomba, we were heading up towards King Arroy. And we ended up, he threw a diversion, and I had to divert out to Dolby. But that's by the by. Yeah. The instructor said, where are we right now? And I said, oh, we're right over the Kuya Ranges, which I knew because I'd driven them many a time. And he said, and it's night, it was pitch black. What would you do if you had an engine failure? And I said, probably die because at night you can't see. Nah. And that's what they tell you, even in a helicopter, pick a, a nice
0: black spot close to a road you know know, if there's a light source something there you know it might be on the side of a hill but there's a light source there so go there you Mm. know and even during the daytime you you, hopefully you've flown many routes many times and you know you start to know the topography of the ground and 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 the route and and the roads and things like that and um difficult doing cross countries where you've never been to that place before and sometimes i i would do my flight planning based around roads in right. New Zealand. Like you, you literally, if you're flying from Auckland to Napier or Gisborne or somewhere like that, you're going to probably fly over small settlements yeah, and, right. and track over roads and things like that just in case.
1: Um, I, I watched a guy last weekend on Flight Aware. I saw this R44 was flying down to Warwick and I was like, oh, I didn't know the red Joe. Yep. I went and then did a red Joe search. Yep. And found that it was the flight director for the company that I used to fly for. And um, I was like, oh, he's out and about. Yeah. And so then I watched him for the day and he, he left Warwick and he flew down to Gatton and then flew back to Toowoomba. Okay. And his track, the weather wasn't great that day, but he was in a helo. So, you know, yeah. he's got options. And, um, and I watched his track and his track from Warwick down to Gatton pretty much followed a road. And I thought, you know, my brain being fixed wing, oh, he must be scud running. But talking to you now, he was yeah. giving himself options to land. Yeah, probably. Yeah.
0: If he if he was smart, he was. Um, it could have been. He might have been scud running. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> Who knows? We've all done that. But um, and it's drummed into you: engine failure, engine yeah. failure. It could be an especially engine in failure. a single. And yeah, yeah, hundred yeah, percent, and piston. Yeah. Yes, Did you have any emergencies in your experience? Yes. Do you want to tell us about it? Yep. Sure. So uh, my first. Emergency. Well, it wasn't an emergency. It was, um, I was on a training flight with an instructor and uh, we were doing a cross country and it took us back over Auckland International Airport. And so I had to, we we had to hold above the tower at a thousand feet and before we were given clearance. Now, so we like literally in a hover in a hover above the tower waiting for traffic. Ah, right. And so I'm in a hover. And so I had control. He's just along for the ride because I was probably at 140, 145 hours at that time. We were ticking off remaining yep. boxes that needed to be ticked. Yep. And we were given clearance. So I'm sitting in a hover at a thousand feet and I get the clearance and I remember the aircraft, Hotel Kilo cleared direct Ardmore and it's probably a 10 minute flight from, from where we were. As soon as I pulled in a little bit of power and, and nosed over it started running real rough and I realized something was wrong. And so I entered an auto rotation and Keith, the instructor said, that's running really rough. Good option. And I actually did an auto rotation knowing that I had power at the end of it. The engine's still running, but it was, you know, rough as crook. Yeah, it was very crook. And I did my flare just before the domestic helipad, put it down on the domestic helipad and and then we shut it down. it it pretty much shut itself down and so we had the magnetos on the right side two magnetos gone we didn't know that until the next day we had to call an engineer out but we didn't want to call mayday or anything like that or even a pan pan Mm. it was just kind of like auckland tower we've we've had to change our um, flight plan. We're now putting down on the domestic helipad and they all, all went, um, are we supposed to get emergency services rolling for you type of thing? <laughs> we're like uh, negative at this point. It's, you know, like, and yeah. we we're on the ground, you yeah, know, yeah. 10 seconds, it was 10 seconds. It was over. Uh, we're on the ground. No need. We're not on fire or anything like that but yeah. you know a lot of paperwork got avoided yeah, that night yeah. so, <laughs> and uh, all the engineers had gone um from from base so they uh, went out the next morning and determined that it was the magnetos and and we'd lost the um i think the starboard side of the engine yeah it was just it was one of those things that happened very very quickly yeah and for me that was a good wake-up call to how quickly something could go wrong we're in a thousand foot hover over auckland tower Auckland International Airport and as soon as we nose over, pull in a little bit of power and half the engines failed. So I haven't had a full engine fail, but I have had a half engine failure. And that was it wasn't scary or anything like that. It was like, you know, like I say, you're training. Pretty GT. pretty experienced at doing autos at that time and Keith yeah. being the instructor, he didn't even touch the controls. He just he just kind of went, Hey, we're we're diverting to the helipad and by that stage we were on the ground, you know, ten, fifteen seconds max and it was done. And over, what's the kind of rate of
1: descent in an auto rotation? It depends on the
0: aircraft. Like you do an auto in a in a Huey with massive inertia in those rotor blades, and you can almost pull in a um, a, a normal approach in them. You know, like right. it's it's you know. It's power off, but the inertia in those blades is is. I went for a ride in a Huey. This is one of my good stories. I went for a ride in a, in a um 205 B model, and the guy had been flying them since Vietnam, so he's really experienced. And I just went for a bit of a blat with him one day. Didn't even log it. Should have logged it, but um, should have logged should've it. Should have logged it. He gave me the stick for a little while, and 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 I flew around a little bit. But then he said, "Hey, watch this," and we did an auto down to the ground. He put it on the ground kept the engine rolled back to flight idle, picked it up, did a 360 and put it back down again. That's how much inertia there is in those rotor blades. Holy cow. So, it, but a Hughes 300, 500, Balfour SM will not do that. You know, you're going to sink real quick. So yeah, it, might yeah, be, right. it might be thousand feet a minute above material that you're going down at. It might be 1500 to 2000 feet a minute type of thing. So your options, you know, and you can, you can adjust certain things like pull in a bit of collective, um, you know, your speed and everything has a fact is a big factor in how quickly you descend or sometimes you want to go down fast. Mm. Sometimes you'll pull S turns and one eighties and three sixties to get to that spot quicker depending on where the spot is, you know, the safest spot to land type of things. Mm-hmm. At night, um, I did quite a bit of night frost flying over orchards and things like that to circulate the, the air to keep the frost off them. I think, you know, I probably logged 50. That's yeah, yeah, that's a thing. And, and so I did that. And so uh, at nighttime, you're hovering over orchards at 100 feet. Circulating the air. If you have an engine failure, you're going to do what's called a a zero-speed auto, which is basically you're just going to sink down, and at the last minute you're going to pull in collective. And essentially, because you're in a hover at 100 feet, there's you know you're going to push over as much as you can to get a little bit of airspeed. But at the end of the day, at 100 feet, your engine fails. You do not have a lot of time. Yeah, it's basically you're on the ground very quickly. So that was my one engine half failure i know there's probably guys that have had three or four in their lifetimes with 20,000 hours or whatever but yeah, yeah. but and some who have flown 20,000 hours and never had one the chief pilot uh, where i learned to fly was an ex rnzaf oh, i'm sorry an ex royal air force Test pilot in the fifties, he did a lot of the testing on the uh, Concorde engines. Yeah, they flew Vulcan bombers and tested the Concorde's engines on these, on those. So he, he was, flew Vulcan bombers. Yeah, he was a and and Sabres. F 86 Sabres. Yeah, right. And so he he went supersonic. He had his supersonic um, thing on the board uh, where he went, you know, in a dive, in a pretty steep dive, from what I understand, uh, went supersonic in that. So he got his MacBusters club um, thing. So he had that on the wall at, (laughs) at the office. And he was both a fixed wing test pilot for the RAF and also a helicopter test pilot for the RAF. And he'd never had an engine failure in any aircraft did flown and he was getting up there in hours like 20 odd thousand hours wow. of flying so over
1: a very long career very fortunate yeah i remember being told pretty early on in my training days by uh, one of the instructors he just said one day you will have an engine failure <laughs> you're yeah. flying long enough you will have an engine yeah. failure and it kind of freaked me out yeah but it makes it real right and yeah, it that's does. the freaking you out it's like yeah, okay yeah. i just need to be prepared yep and your training kicks in yeah
0: and like any time you get an opportunity to do an auto rotation, do one. It's not going to wreck the machine. Training. Yeah, just yeah.
1: refreshing it. So, for I think I know what a, a like a three hundred is. A 300's kind of this is. A, I'm not a helicopter guy, right? Yeah. A 300's kind of like the helicopter that I would have seen in Mash. No, that's a Bell forty-seven. But kind of like a bubble canopy. It's a bubble
0: canopy. Three, three. Um, 3 blade. Three-bladed. The C model has a – you can take the, the right-hand pilot's collective and cyclic and pedals out and you can actually fit a person in the middle. There's a little seat, so it
1: becomes a three-seater, and which is a bonus. And so then the 500, the Hughes 500, that's turbine or not? Yeah, it is. That's, yep. the, that's like what I would have seen in – That
0: is the Ferrari of helicopters. They use those in
1: Vietnam, I believe. Yeah, they called them
0: loaches back then. Uh, Oh, sixes, little birds. They use them now. All the special forces guys fly them, and um, they make a few adjustments to them, you know, to make them a little bit quieter and and their handling and things like that. But yeah, Hughes five hundred. So you've got time in the Hughes five hundred. I got to fly the very first five hundred no tar in the southern hemisphere. It got bought down. It was. Hotel Mike Delta, MD. Yeah, right. And that got shipped over here to Australia and sold in Australia when it was demonstrated over here. Somebody went, Yeah, I've got the cash. I'll buy that. I'll take that off your hands. And so um, I've flown the N model just a little bit, but I was a student pilot then when I got to fly that believe it or not. That would um, be pretty amazing. Yeah, it was pretty cool. So did you get a type rating in it or just no, that No, I never did a type rating in the 500, but I we had a jet ranger there that was online, so I flew the jet ranger. I did my type rating in that. The only other turbine experience apart from that Huey that I told you in is uh, Bell407, one of the instructors, the guy that I was with when we had that partial engine failure, he was the private pilot for a, a big famous banking family in New Zealand. And he was their chauffeur in their Bell 407. And that is like if the the 500 is the Ferrari, then the Bell 407, as far as I'm concerned, is like the Cadillac. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's a beautiful machine to fly. But I, I don't have a type rating in it. I just, uh, every now and then I'd get to... Come along for a bit of a long time. Yeah, I logged my time. Nice. On that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely did. It was um, very generous of him to think of me on these ferry flights. So you haven't flown in some time. No, nope. there's no money in flying, mode, <laughs> especially helicopters. So I, I, I can give you an example. I, I started to get a little bit frustrated with the industry. It's it's like you spend all, and I'm going to tell all you young pilots out there that are listening. You spend all this money, you get made all the, all these promises. Well, these promises are probably lies. In, in my instance, I was lucky to log a couple of hundred hours after my commercial uh, license because I'd put some plans in place beforehand. And I was about to do my instructor's rating and I got shafted. So I did all the, the hours that I need. I have all the hours I need to do my instructor's rating, still have, have that obviously, but that company that I was flying for was not loyal to me you know they um, somebody else came in and waved some more money at them and they went with that mm. and so you know these guys that were my friends and, and things like that you sort of learn it's a, it's a business mm. and and you you're just a young pilot somebody's always going to work for less money and mm. um, i'm now, i'm I'm grateful now at the ripe age of nearly 53 that I could go in and go, I don't need to get paid. Mm. I'll sweep your floors. I don't need to get paid because I don't have a mortgage. I don't have a, I don't have a student debt that I have to take care mm-hmm. of. I've made some money outside. I've made some good decisions. Bad decision was getting into debt to learn to fly helicopters. Yeah. And you struggle for a lot of, lot of years thereafter. My, my advice to anybody is... Work for 10 years, earn the money to do your commercial license, don't take out a student loan, be 30 years old, have some life experience and not be reliant on having to sweep the floors and get treated like crap by people. Be able to walk away from a job where they're not being safe. Mm -hmm. So I'd done a couple of jobs that I thought were a little bit sketch and... um, then I realized that on one of these jobs, got sent down to pick up a, an old Hughes 300 from uh, Wanganui, which is um, on the West Coast, very rugged country. And so they actually said to me, hey, can you go and pick up this aircraft? Oh, and can you fly yourself down there on tomorrow's Air New Zealand flight? You pay for the flight to go down there? And I'm like, no, you want me to pick up this hel- uh, helicopter that is coming up to be refurbished and resold you buy my ticket down there. And at that point, I was a little bit dejected with some of the jobs that I was doing and the way that I was being treated. So after much wrangling, guess what? They paid for my ticket to go and pick up this thing. Mm-hmm. They were just being cheap. Mm. Nick will go down there. He'll pay for his If It was only 90 bucks or something. It might have been 70 bucks. I don't care. But what the, the principle at that point was, no, I'm not putting up with this. And I've come to find out that this helicopter had been thrashed. And the first question that these guys asked me when they, no, they drove me an hour out of Whanganu into the bush and it was an old house and it was um, at this, this 300 sitting on, on, a, on a tennis court there. An old rundown tennis court that hadn't been used in years. All the the, the uh, wire was, you know, for the fencing was was rusted out and things like that. And sort of gave me a little bit of an indication as to what sort of operation these guys were running. And that was a big logging thing. And I'd, I'd done a little bit of logging, strop um, running, and things like that, which is where you know the helicopters used to have the they have the long lines on the big aircraft. And they use a little aircraft to go and pick up the strop and take it back. And so you're ferrying the um the, the cables. The cable. Yeah, the cables ah, for right. the um and so they'd use this three hundred for strop flying and for inserting workers and things like that for a number of years and probably the maintenance records weren't that great on it and things like that. But, you know, you get in, you check everything, any problems with no, 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 she runs beautifully, but. da 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 you know, it'll, the radio will be a bit crackly when you when you take off because, it, um, you know, you're a long way out, and you, you know, but New Plymouth is, is, you know, you'll get good reception once you come into there. They're giving me all these excuses and I'm starting to get a little bit worried. But they said, hey, do you want to go tuna boat flying? And I went, hmm? <laughs> they go, it's $75,000 a year and um, it's US dollars. It's offshore, so it's tax-free. And I went... Give me the number. They gave me the number. I jump in the machine. They fueled it up for me. I, I checked everything, went over it, pre-fighted everything. Everything looked good. And sure, turn the radio on and it's a bit crackly. Well, it wasn't working very well, that radio. And I had three hours of flying ahead of me above some of the most rugged country but, uh, between Whanganui and Hamilton, uh, well, Auckland, but I was going to go via Hamilton. I knew I had enough fuel to get to Hamilton, right? And so I'm flying over this dodgy country looking at places to autorotate and knowing that if I have to go in, if I have an engine failure, I'm, I'm at the bottom of a gorge and head in whatever direction. It's the same distance. It's probably a couple of hundred k's to anywhere. To anywhere. And you can't radio anyone. And you can't radio anyone. There's no such thing as a 406 beacon or anything like that, you know, satellite phones and things like that. So I head off on this journey and um, I'm – I can see Hamilton Airfield. It's probably 10 k's away. I was about to make a radio call. It was very crackly. The radio's not working real great. Um, And all of a sudden, I hear this crack, uh, another crackle in my ear and I see this orange light on the warning light come on. And I I look at it and it says fuel low. But I look at the gauge and it says 13 US gallons still in the tank. And I'm like, What's going on here? That's like 50 litres. Yeah. I'm sitting there going, "I'm, I'm five minutes from landing. But a warning light comes on, trust the warning light over what the gauge says. Yeah. And that was the one thing that even as a junior pilot, I thought the warning light could be faulty because the gauge is showing me 13 US gallons still. I know I've still got an hour's endurance left in me. And I aired on the side of caution. I entered an auto rotation, found a spot a farmer's driveway a big patch of grass on the side of the driveway leading up to the house and uh, I did an auto rotation pulled it into a hover and then a car is coming up the driveway so I thought oh maybe I'll just adjust my position further away from the driveway so I picked it up into a hover again and moved maybe two meters to the left and the engine quit And I did have a, it wasn't an engine failure, but the juice wasn't flowing. And so a pretty good decision for me. Hmm. So the farmer's wife said, she'll take me into Hamilton. It's a five minute drive into the airfield, took the fuel card, got 20 litres of fuel, uh, you know, borrowed a a jerry can, took it back, put 20 litres in, then picked it up, flew it to Hamilton, juiced up again, uh, got to got to Ardmore later in the day. They kind of said, Hey, that took a while. What happened? And, uh, but one of them said, Oh, you made it. (laughs) Which indicated to me, they knew, they knew that this aircraft was dodgy. Who can we get to go and fly it? And it was like the junior boy. Mm. And I was just like, and they knew that there was a real possibility that I wasn't coming home from that flight and they joked about it. And I was, and so I threw the keys across the desk and said, don't call me anymore. Walked away basically from the industry at that point. Yeah. You know, a lot of guys will put up with that sort of stuff. But but the funny thing was, I phoned, I thought I've got somewhere to go. I've got this tuna boat. And I did. I had a gig lined up on a tuna boat flying out of Guam. Had to be there at a certain time and date. Had a job sorted out. Met my wife that night (laughs) and thought, if I go away for six months on a tuna boat, she
1: ain't going to be here when I get back. Fell in love. So what next for you? Like, where do you want to go? You mentioned before you're nearly 53.
0: Yeah, nearly 53. I know we've talked. I had big plans, you know, like I've done okay financially. And so I thought to myself, you know, I've got a few options at the moment. I'm in a position now where I don't have to get paid to fly. I'd like to get my license back. Like I'm in the process of getting my medical back at the moment. I have all my ASICs and everything done. I have money in the bank that I can spend on getting up to speed again. Mm -hmm. You know, if I have to spend 10, 20 hours flying to get back to where I was, I can. Now now I kind of feel like I don't really want to do it as a career. Like aviation now is something that I can do. It's not something that I have to do. Mm -hmm. I might just feel like buying a small helicopter and doing some flying I I, you know or or paying once or twice a month to go and go for a surf somewhere you know like I I, you know like whatever the options are yeah I can do that now but yeah I'm just I'm just waiting to see what what happens with this economy and things like that at the moment that's that's where I'm at I, I would like to volunteer as a co-pilot, even on a rescue chopper, you know, I can, I can, I could do an instrument rating. I could do dual pilot rating or all that sort of stuff. I can afford to fly now, whereas I couldn't before. Yeah. And so there are a lot, lots of options for me.
1: Well, I I think there's options for me. Maybe there's not. A couple of questions then. Go. You've told us about um, what I would consider a pretty memorable experience and about that Hughes 300 up into Hamilton. Yeah. Have you got any other memorable experience you had flying a particular airframe and and what made it special? So you've talked about the, I think it was a 407. 407. Yeah, the
0: 407. Yeah, that's a beautiful machine. Uh, the Notar was cool fun. I've done some really interesting, like even in my short career, I did some really interesting jobs. Like you fly, like I say, those fishing trips, you fly out over the Hauraki Gulf in New Zealand and you will see whales, you'll see massive pods of hammerhead sharks, killer whales, dolphins, you know, like just the beauty of the place that you're you're flying. flying. And I have been out west, you know, I've done, uh, you know, I'm a keen hunter and shooter. The sunsets here in Australia in the outback are more beautiful than anything I've seen anywhere in the world. And so, like, even though it's a dusty, arid sort of place from time to time, the beauty of Australia you know, I, I look forward to doing some flying here. I reckon it's beautiful mm. spot to fly. And so, you know, uh one of the one of the jobs I did was um sling loading dynamite into a um, into a dam. They wanted to blow up all the tree stumps and create a hole in the ground. That was one of the very first jobs that I did was sling loading some We've got dynamite. Who gets yeah. to do that? Oh, Nick. <laughs> That's right. Nickel. Nickel, do it. Send the junior guy, you know, but <laughs> I had my sling rating and, yeah. and um, the company I was working for had the dangerous goods. Yeah. Um, I've done aerial photography jobs where, you know, photographing houses. I was in a, in a big aviation magazine that was doing a write-up on Hughes 300s or Switzer 300s in New Zealand and I was photographed in that. I've been photographed on a um, magazine, uh, wing and rotor, um, or Rotor and Wing, I can't remember which one it is now, but I was on the front page of that as a junior pilot in the Notar. poster boy. Yeah, yeah, it was quite funny. You know, like here I am just getting into the industry and there's, you know, Worldwide Magazine had me on the cover in and, and a little white Hughes 300 um, trucking along above the countryside of New Zealand. And That's cool. The, you know, the frost flying is really interesting, hovering at night. Everybody runs out of fuel at the same time, believe it or not. You know, if you've got two and a half hours endurance – and the frost flying starts at 9pm, because it's going to freeze, everybody's cranking at the same time, and everybody's rushing back to the fuel balzers at the same time. Ah. And you, you'll be lined up at one in the morning with two squirrels, two jet rangers, half a dozen 300s, and probably some Robinsons now nowadays, you know, all yeah. waiting to get fuel lining up. Everybody's you leapfrogging know, as they leapfrogging go, leapfrogging up to the Bowser and filling up, and yeah, interesting stuff like that. It's quite quite good fun, you know. That's incredible. Yeah,
1: never even like considered. Yeah, frost flying, but yep. I guess there's I live an in inversion layer at about
0: a hundred feet above the the crop. You know, like the 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 cooling at night, yep. the heat rises, and and you're literally looking at your temperature gauge, and you'll see it. It'll you know like you'll go from minus two degrees to five degrees. At hundred
1: feet, so you're just pushing the warm air
0: yeah, down, pushing the warm uh, warm air down, making sure that the the and you're just hovering back and forward in lines and grids over these um, apples, oranges, pears, you name it. And uh, holy cow, yeah,
1: that's pretty cool. That's an expensive way to get warm air, it down. Is, but I it guess is, lose a crop and you know, it's more expensive. When you've got expensive. thousands
0: of acres, yeah. and and most of the time, what they do is they'll burn diesel and drums uh, to create, and and so you'll see the warm air going up and then you'll see the inversion layer yeah. because the smoke spreads out yeah. sideways. And so that's an indicator, but they're also burning these drums to create heat, heat above so that you can circulate it. So, cause you know, sometimes it'll get, you know, minus five, minus 10 degrees Wow. And, and you'll have, you know, some, some of the places you'll have five or six helicopters flying and you get given your airspace to fly and your crops, you, you know, and everybody's communicating with each other and talking to each other about where they are and you, you're looking at your knee map going, or your knee board going, okay, well, I'm in, I'm, in, I'm in 1A, so-and-so's in 2B
1: and they intersect and so, you know, you're looking out for
0: traffic and, you know, where am I going to go next and, yes,
1: yeah, it's interesting right. stuff. That's interesting yeah. flying. Um, you talked about that flight from Hamilton. The, my next question is, what's one of your most fear-filled flight experiences? I imagine that would have to be... My first
0: couple of flights are... You know, like when you, you're first solo, I'm going to say, guy gets out and you're on your own. Mm. As much as you're eagerly anticipating that and you think you know it all yeah. at that point, when he actually hops out and you don't have that crutch to lean on, True. Um, that was, you know, that was interesting. But at the same token, it was, it was cool. You know, you take off, you do that circuit and you come back and hover and he... He's pointing, go and do it again, yeah. and then and then he starts walking back to the base, yeah. and, and uh, that was cool, but yeah, fear-filled. Fear filled. Sometimes the, the most fear that you get is, I got a bit of vertigo once. Yeah, right. I was flying up the face of this mountain, and so I'm at low level, essentially climbing in, in the mountains, and then all of a sudden – you come to a cliff face on the other side and it drops off 3,000 feet. And so you're, you're, you're at low level and then you pop out. That shocked me the first time. It was kind of, like, whoa, you go from 50 feet to, to 3,000 feet, feet like that and all of a sudden it's like, whoa, that, did, did that just happen? So that was, that was one of the things where I kind of I got a fright when I was flying. The little light coming on in the cop, the little orange light coming on. Yeah. I've had a tail rotor transmission warning light come on twice, and I reckon um, in the 300, that happened twice in the 300. The first time it came on, I it was when I was frost flying, and in the middle of the night, like 2 a.m., this light comes on, and that's a shut down check the chip light, you know, you got to remove the wire, check the chip light, reinstall the wire. So the engineer had shown me how to, how to do all that because that was a possibility. And so that coming on at night, there was a little crackle in my earpiece. All of a sudden I heard this crackle and saw the light at the same time. And then the second time that happened, same thing. I'm flying along and I hear this crackle and bright light. And I literally thought, I, I know what that crackle is. Hmm. Um, I can't see the... The light, and I actually had to shield the the warning light with my hand to to because of the glare that I was um, getting, uh, you know, straight into the sun. And sure enough, yes, the chip light was on. So I've had Tower Rotor chip light come on twice, never a main transmission.
1: Any kind of warning light would be a concern, though. Yeah, once again, I knock did, on wood, I've not had one. Yeah, I, and even
0: when I was doing my Jet Ranger type rating. Literally sitting in the hover, all warning lights are out, nosed forward, warning light comes on and it was a fuel sensor of some sort as far as I remember but we were lucky we were in the circuit and we just turned turned around, went over to the um, workshop that serviced the jet ranger and plonked it down there and said we've had this chip light come on, fix it and an hour later
1: we were back in the circuit. If you were given the opportunity expense free to get a type rating in any airframe, could be fixed wing, could be... Black Hawk. <laughs> yeah, Black Hawk. Uh, yeah, private Black Hawk would be cool. That'd be where I'm at. What advice would you give to someone starting out in aviation? You've already given some advice. Yeah.
0: But, and- Do your due diligence, is what I tell anybody getting into any business. Do your due diligence. Don't take anybody's word for it. You know, like if they say there's a shortage of pilots, go out and test that theory. So you'll know that there are helicopter jobs out there. You know, if you're going to start a business, selling ice to eskimos do your due diligence and find out how much ice they actually need in the arctic mm. do you know what i mean like yeah, yeah. you know do they need helicopter pilots in the northern territory at the moment well there's only one way to find out and don't take the the guy who's got a helicopter flight school in sydney's word for the fact that you'll get a job in the northern territory Fly to the Northern Territory, rent a car and go and talk to the helicopter operators up there mm. before you do your license. Mm. Don't take anybody else's advice for it. I'll tell you what's funny, is you know how I told you that my the, the best man at my dad's wedding was ended up being a Air, Air Pacific. Air Pacific yeah. He was their chief pilot. I was flying joyrides at Ardmore in this little 300 on an open day. And I was busy for six hours flying, you know, it was great you know, new commercial pilot getting six hours on a Saturday and Sunday, whatever it was. And then this guy comes up and he goes, oh, what's your name? I said, uh, Nick Bowie. Are you related to Peter? Peter was my dad. He goes, "I was your dad's best man at his wedding. And I said, really? I said, my mum's around here somewhere. And he goes, is she? I said, yeah, I took her for a fly earlier. Have this little get together. Yeah. And he goes, "Um, do you have your commercial fixed wing license as well? And I said no, no, just helicopters. And he goes, oh, that's a shame. I said why, and he goes, well, I could have put you in a seven three seven. Oh, didn't matter how many hours you <laughs> had. I'm the boss, yeah. and all you would have needed was an instrument rating and yeah. and my my endorsement. And, and you, you can could right have been. Seat it. So I was, you know, I look back on that game, opportunity lost, <laughs> because I like these
1: things that beat the air into submission. Yeah. Oh well, opportunity. Well, opportunity. Hey? What if? Well, Knowing circum- what I know now. And circumstances change, right? Yeah. So I, my end goal was to fly for the Flying Doctors, fly the King Air. Yeah. Like to me that was just the epitome of awesome flying because yeah. it's so varied, right? And um, so that's why I went into the caravan, which was flying skydivers, which I mm-hmm. didn't want to fly. Like I told mm-hmm. myself I'm not doing parachute jumps. Yeah. I'm going to go the commercial route, the normal charter and whatnot. Yeah. But no, this opportunity came up and I was very thankful for the opportunity, to be honest. It's a beautiful airplane to fly although parachute jump flying, it's fairly fear-filled. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. (laughs) Yes, when your whole windscreen is full of ground as you're on your way down in a a van, you know, on VNE the whole time. Yeah. But, you know, so I was going to go from there, and then I had a friend, he was working for a company called Eastern Well, and they were flying King Airs. Mm -hmm. So he got me in contact with the chief pilot there, rang him up, said, this is what I'm doing, I'm flying these caravans, I've just started out in them. I want to fly for the flying doctors, but I want to come through Eastern. well, what do I do? And yeah. he said, oh, get 750 hours in the van, go get 500 hours on a twin and you've got a job. Come yeah. see me and I'll employ you.
0: Yeah.
1: So it's like, oh, sweet. Because then once you're in the king airs, yeah. you know, do three, 4,000 hours on those. And yeah. then you got this ticket into potentially into the flying doctors. Mm. And then, yep, find out the wife's pregnant with number five and that kind of changed Squashes things. Squashes things. Yeah, 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 things. yeah, that's right. I know. I know you pivot you
0: have you're forced to pivot very quickly very quickly yeah like if i had it to do over i'd do it differently unfortunately there's really no do-overs i, I, I can't um, identify as a 23 year old anymore if you know what i mean like yeah. it just my body is not 23
1: and yeah whatever well, you um your tick is going though. You've got the opportunity. That's
0: right. Yeah. And I've, if you can get a med- – I know guys here on the Sunshine Coast who are 70 odd years old and they've still got their medicals and they still fly. So mm. I'm sitting there thinking to myself, if I could spend the next 20 years in aviation still, mm. you know, you can a- a- amass a lot of
1: hours in 20 years of flying. Yeah, And I think I mentioned in the, in the podcast that I just did about myself, it's all about the right time and the right way. Yeah, you know, and e- even then, you know, some
0: some of the um, medicals that you can get has to be or well, supervised or fly as a co-pilot type of thing. Well, somebody with who's seventy five, who's still sharp, who can still do day to day stuff, can sit in the passenger seat of a rescue helicopter. Yes, and you've as got lookout you've and got radios and- yeah radios and things like, and you've got a a lifetime of. Experience sitting there next to you if you have an emergency or have, mm. a, or who can help you make the right decision, you know? Yeah, so, yeah. as opposed to, like I say, the
1: 20 year old who's just like, yeah, let's do it, you yeah, know? Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's get it. That's some incredible insights. Thanks so much for your time. No, no problem. we are really got plenty of it, it at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> the semi retirement gig is pretty cool. So, honestly, Nick, if anyone gets to know you, they'll have an asset if they will oh, put appreciate you in their that. chopper. Yep. So, I think you've, you've shown it a few times in the last, you know, 30 minutes that we've chatted or so, yeah. <laughs> and that is that you're no-nonsense, you Man, tell it how it is, yeah. and to be honest, that's what you want. You need no-nonsense.
0: And, and that is an age and experience thing as well, um, and, and don't get me wrong, some 21-year-olds have got their lives together, mm. and so I'm not going to take that away from them. Sometimes, you know, the 21-year-old might be more mature. And more capable.
1: It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the High Fly Media Podcast, Nick. Your aviation journey is both inspiring and informative, and I'm sure our listeners will benefit from hearing about your experiences. Thanks so much. We'll have to have a chat again another time. Yes, for sure. Thanks for tuning in to the High Fly Media Podcast with our guest, Nick Bowie. Hope you've enjoyed listening to Nick's insights and experiences as a commercial helicopter pilot and successful entrepreneur. Join us next time for more fascinating discussions. Subscribe now on your favorite podcast platform and leave a review to help spread the word. The High Fly Media Podcast, uncovering the people and passion behind aviation, one story at a time.